one of the most wonderful things about worship, about psalms, is that they are often packed with theology. And I know that for some people that word can be fairly scary, that the study or the knowledge of God can seem so beyond or above that we don't want to engage. And I want to encourage us this morning that when you love someone, you engage in those things. And I think Psalm 8 is a beautiful picture of two important parts of our understanding of who God is. I think David the psalmist really illustrates that well for us, that he shows us that God is both transcendent, which means that he is above, beyond, holy other, that he is, he is uh, so much greater than and bigger than uh, and foreign to us. Uh, in some, some ways, you might think of something transcendent as inaccessible. And for God, this is a paradox because he is both transcendent and imminent. Not imminent, like coming soon, but imminent as in near. He is near to those whom he loves. David the psalmist does a really fantastic job of illustrating this and, and wrestling with that paradox a little bit, even in this psalm. He understands God as both of these things. And I think even in light of what Pastor Ron just shared, understanding our God and our, our Savior as holy other, capable beyond our understanding, yet near. And understanding our very selves is critical. Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Right out of Psalm 1, David begins by exalting or making much of who God is. David has experienced God as majestic and as glorious, that his glory is above the heavens. For him, he would see God in this way as transcendent, that God has placed his glory above what we can merely see, maybe another uh, whole understanding of that. Uh, he, he refers to the Lord as majestic, something that you would refer to as a king, having majesty, having power, those robes, that dominion, that impressiveness that we might think of. He says, O Lord, our Lord. And even in that beginning sentence, you see this transcendence and imminence. O Lord. And if you notice in your Bibles, as Pastor Andrew pointed out last week, that first Lord is in all caps, which would be the proper name of God, which would be Yahweh. He says, O Lord, O Yahweh, our Lord, our Master. Using the intimate name of God and also referring to him as Lord, Master, over himself and over this situation. How majestic is your name, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Israel, but in all the earth. The Lord's name is majestic. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the application section, but think about those times where you have encountered God as majestic in the earth, as, as that breathtaking, noticing who God is by what he's put on display as common grace for all men to see. 
You have set your glory above the heavens. This glory of the Lord was always significant in the Old Testament and ever significant in the New Testament, even into eternity. God's glory is significant. That is the place where we as humans are designed to dwell in, near the glory of the Lord. That is where we want to be. And we will be with him one day forever in glory if we believe in him and we follow him with our lives. Uh, God's glory set above the heavens. His glory is significant throughout Scripture. His glory is with the people of Israel in the tabernacle and the temple. His glory is made known through the person of Jesus. And now we experience his glory through the Holy Spirit. And one day we will experience his glory fully in his presence in the new heavens and the new earth. A day that we long for and wait for. That is our goal and our aim, is that we experience that glory that is above the heavens. God is transcendent. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, do we take this passage to mean that God is sending children in his army? No. What we take this passage to mean is that God is dumbfounding his enemies through ridiculous means because he is so much greater than and better than those enemies that he's encountering. Out of the mouths of babies and infants. And this passage is quoted later on. Uh, you can look at Matthew twenty-one sixteen for that. That Jesus even uses this to say, look, out of the mouths of babies and infants, God is using any means necessary to communicate his glory and his purposes. Even if that means babies and infants. You've established strength because of your foes. God has fortified his position. He has shown he is strong. He has shown he is able. I did hint at that at the beginning, but as as we're going through this, we are noticing deep, true things about who God is. We've already noticed that he's transcendent. He's above, that he's beyond, that he's orchestrating things. He's causing things to come into motion despite his glory being above the heavens. Uh, the second thing is that he is powerful and he is able, that he has orchestrated and worked through the mouths of babies and infants to stop his enemies. Because of the strength of his enemies, he has done this against them. God is powerful, he is able, he notices, he protects. He is transcendent. He stills the enemy, he stills the avenger. David, I like to think here, takes a step back and looks up. That glory that God has placed above the heavens, beyond that transcendent glory. Verse 3, it says, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Don't think that this is a unique experience for David. I think we've all felt small at some point. David steps back and he looks at the heavens and the moon and the stars and how things are so vast and big. We may have a fuller understanding of that now, of what exactly that vastness and that bigness of the universe is. Seeing things that God has set in place and ordained and orchestrated, spoken into existence. He says here with his finger, he's, he's put them there. God is designer intentionally placing things 
in the order that they should be in. Big things. Things like moons and stars. Things that if they started coming toward us would terrify us. God is the one who has orchestrated and put those things in their place. David rightfully takes this to the next step and says, God, you have done such big things. You have orchestrated such large things, such, such significant, vast things in the heavens. And then he turns. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? God, it seems like you have a lot more going on in this world than me. It seems like you have a lot of celestial bodies to keep in place, that you have planets in place, you have moons in place, you have the sun in place, you have galaxies and and orbits. And Why do you care for me? Why do you care for the Son of Man? Somebody who is reproduced by another human. I think we've all felt like that. I think we've all felt like that when we've seen the grandeur, the majesty of who God is. And we've looked up and seen stars and planets and celestial beings in motion. Celestial bodies in motion that we do feel small and insignificant, and I think rightfully so. But I think that God, despite that insignificance that we feel momentarily, looks directly to us and sees everything. I'd like to illustrate that point by turning uh, to the book of Matthew with you. So if you could please turn there. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. God is so far above and beyond, and yet he's also so near. David has wrestled with this here already. What is man that you're mindful of him? Lord, you have set these things in motion. You have painted these things with your fingers. You have, you have spoken them into existence, the grandeur, the majesty of who you are, your glory above the heavens. Yet you care for man. Why do you care for man? What is man that you're mindful of him? One of my favorite questions that uh, youth will often ask is, why did God create man? And the answer is because he wanted to. Because he wanted to. He didn't need to. He didn't have to. But he wanted to. And despite his, uh, that unnecessary creation, constantly mocking him and spitting in his face despite being made in his image, the way that God tenderly and intentionally cares for each human is beyond our full understanding. I don't think we quite get it. I do think one day we will. Matthew chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 26. I think I said 29, but we'll start in 26. Context, context, context. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. For some of us, that's a shorter count than others. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God, who has set the world into existence, holds all things together by his word. It's transcendent. He's not so without also being near, without also being imminent. David asks, what is man that you are mindful of him? And Jesus reiterates that God's knowledge about us is so detailed that he knows the number of hairs on your head. You're worth much more than many sparrows. Now, Jesus uses this as a warning to say, listen, fear not man, but fear the Lord. If you're going to stand for someone, stand for the Lord. But it does reiterate that point in Psalm 8, and that's an implication of that point, that God knows us. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're thinking. He knows where you want to have lunch. If you want to have lunch, he knows, and he cares. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? One of the interesting things about this psalm is that David doesn't answer the question. There's no clear answer given. Sometimes this is a question I'll struggle with. What is man that you're mindful of him? Why do you care? We came back from Hume Lake the end of uh, July with this high school group. And that's just another beautiful place where you can look up to the sky and see the stars. And I remember having conversations with students under the stars and just being like, why is this a thing that you still care about? Yet he made us a little lower than the angels. He, he crowned us with glory and honor, made us in his image, and cares tenderly about every detail. Hebrews chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there. rest of you, but I've, I've been pretty vocal with a high school group recently that I have a love-hate relationship with the book of Hebrews. There's so many things in there that um, the Lord, through his divine revelation and inspiration, has had put in there that um, just completely confused me in an Old Testament interpretation. Um, there's these things like one of the, one of the uh, dumbfounding ones is he throws in this character Melchizedek, who people because of the book of Hebrews, will take as a pre-incarnate Jesus. When, if you had just read the Old Testament up to that point, you'd be like, that's just a dude. Um, So the book of Hebrews is a tricky book. And I say that not as a means of saying withdraw from it, but engage with it. Uh, 
It's a book that is so full of deep biblical Christian truth that we need to rely on and pursue. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might not taste death for everyone. Now those things that I pointed out about the uh, the Old Testament walking through, and the Old Testament means what the Old Testament means, and it was applied and, and written to a specific people, right? And then the author of Hebrews takes Psalm 8 and says, yeah, this is now talking about Jesus. Um, that is the full divine revelation. That is uh, the author of Hebrews, which we can have fun discussions about another time, saying, yeah, this passage back here also applies to Jesus. This passage from Psalm 8, which gives us a fuller meaning of the text uh, and helps us better understand what exactly God was doing with Jesus uh, in that condescension when Jesus came down to us. Philippians 2 even speaks to that, what Jesus gave up to become with man and like man. So we see this passage used elsewhere in Scripture, in Hebrews 2, namely. The Son of Man is a title that Jesus uh, was called by and used, now applied in Hebrews to the same person, the Christ. I do want to say in the specific context of Psalm 8 written to uh, the nation of Israel, that the Son of Man would have also referred to just human beings in general. Um, and that's okay. We get a fuller meaning by having the whole canon of Scripture, including the New Testament. Uh, so point number one in your notes, the psalmist reflects on the majesty of the Lord and the humble position of man. That's Psalm 8, 1 through 4. So that blank in your notes is humble. And this was kind of a fun one to separate and, and work out uh, because the second point in your notes has uh, a different reflection on that same position of man. Verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Uh, just curious, does anybody have a different word there for heavenly beings? Angels? God? Yeah, so what ended up happening here uh, is a... The, so there's... Um, there's, the Old Testament was written in the language of, of Hebrew, uh, largely. There's Aramaic sections as well. But largely the Old Testament was written in the language of Hebrew. And there, there came a time in the New Testament world as the world was becoming unified um, under a language, the lingua franca of the day was Greek. Uh, they became unified under Greek. And so uh, 
Jews took the Old Testament and rewrote it in Greek. Not rewrote it, tran- translated it into Greek. Um, and we call that the Septuagint. Septuagint. And so in the Septuagint, when you get to Psalm 8, um, they refer to these heavenly beings as gods. Um, and you also have the Hebrew word Elohim in there as well, which can refer to the same place. Um, Elohim being that plural version of the Hebrew word El, meaning either the proper name for God, which God refers to himself as Elohim, or gods, like little gods, which can mean heavenly beings or angels. So that's where you get that sort of uh, hiccup there in that translation. Uh, I do want to say I think that sometimes as modern-day evangelical American believers, we can get really obsessed with angels and just dive into that and do a whole theology of angels. Uh, I jokingly said context, context, context at the beginning, but that's something we teach the students and they learned at Wildwood this year, is that your context matters. And if David here isn't jumping into a whole theology of angels, I don't think we should either. Uh, So what he's trying to illustrate here is the position of man being, we have been placed a little bit lower. And the author of Hebrews uniquely adds, for the time being, uh, we've been placed a little bit lower than the angels. Positionally, uh, functionally, we are a little bit lower than the angels. Now, it's not always going to work like that. Paul even reiterates later on, do you not know that you will judge the angels? Uh, so there, there is a position change when we are glorified in body. That's why the author of Hebrews adds that clarification. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Part of this crowning of glory and honor is that image of God. The angels don't necessarily bear that same image or that same weight. That we, in our unique position, have been given dominion, like God has been given dominion, that we are reflecting and pointing back to the fact that God is on his throne and that he is uh, executing his plan and holding the world together in his transcendence and imminence. We have been crowned with glory and honor. Now that doesn't mean that we are bowing down to each other. That's not what that means. What it means is, again, what the context is going to dictate for us here. And so as we continue down, we're going to see fleshed out what that glory and honor looks like. You have given him dominion over the works of his hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, those of us who have read the Old Testament before, some bells are coming, uh, they're ringing, I don't know why the bells would be coming. That's Santa. Um, Santa's not coming. (laughs) The kids are gone. The kids are gone. Okay. Santa's not coming. Um, Bells are ringing. Uh, Because it should flash us back to a a position in the book of Genesis. Uh, The book of Genesis, uh, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, you have what's called the uh, creation mandate. And so God tells well, his creation, namely uh, the, those image bearers, Adam and Eve, that they are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, that they are to exercise dominion over it, over the birds of the air, over the plants, over the fish of the sea, and everything that moves along the ground. That's what man's job is. As an image bearer of God, we are 
below him and acting like him in the fact that we have dominion over these things. That was what the creation mandate was there in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Now the psalmist reflects back to that and says, look, this is the position God's given to man. That despite God's transcendence, he's also imminent and he's also given a responsibility. You've cloned it with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All those created things man has dominion over. And this dominion is significant because God worked these things with his hands. He spoke them into existence. He made them. And then he says, you care for them. You care for these things. And then he goes into naming some of the animals. All sheep and oxen, and also all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Again, that being quoted there from that very same creation mandate I mentioned earlier. These are what God has created and what God has given man dominion over. So David starts by looking up and saying, When I look at the stars and the heavens and the works of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor and given him dominion over the things, the works of your hands. Over those beasts, over those things that move on the ground, over the fish, everything God has given man dominion over. So despite that insignificant place when you look up, when you look down, you realize that God has given you position. He's been clothed with glory and honor. He's given you a place to execute, to image bear him. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He repeats that refrain. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is man that you are mindful of him? David asks. The son of man that you care for him. Why, why would you notice? Why would you, why would you count the hairs on our heads? Why would you care about the details of my life? Yet he does. Yet he does. Significantly, he does. Point number two in your notes. The psalmist turns to the significance of man and ends with exalting the Lord once again. David's heart in this psalm is really not to exalt the place of man at all, but to exalt the Lord in his glory and his honor. The Lord's design, that his intentionality with what he's created. He looks at man as not really of much value in the grand scheme of things. Then he says, yet, that's who you've chosen. That's who you've given glory and honor. That's who you've chosen to give dominion to. Exercise over these things. A couple points in application. Who are we and who is God? Who are we and who is God? I think that uh, one of the first sins was pride. It's struggling for that position that God has himself and uniquely. We need to see ourselves as humble and lowly. 
not deserving of that position or, or seeking after that position. We are placed in this position by God. Who is God? We saw a lot about who God is in this section. We saw that he is transcendent, that he's above, he's beyond. We saw that he's imminent, that he's near. We saw that he is strong, that he's intentional, that he is um, trusting, that he is trustworthy. Psalm was full of theology, exalting the Lord. God is exalted, we are lowly. How does that impact our relationships and our interactions? How does that impact our relationships and our interactions? A couple points in that. Uh, it should impact your relationships and your interactions by pointing to the one who is exalted. He's the one in whom there's strength, not in, not in man, although God does use man to communicate those things. He is the one that we go to. He's the one that we turn to. God is exalted. He is able to do it. He has a significant place for man. Despite his transcendence and his above and beyond, he is near in his imminence. Cares, knows, wants to hear from you. That's one way it impacts our relationships and our interactions. Another way it impacts that is we understand that what we have is given from the Lord. The position we have, the glory, the honor, that God has bestowed on us as image bearers is just from the Lord. What is man that you are mindful of him? Why does he care? Because he wants to? So it should impact our relationships and our actions to be point people back to the Lord, the one in whom, the one who is exalted, the one in whom we can trust, and the one whom we can uh, turn to with things because he knows every intimate detail of our lives. Number two, an application. How do we view our personal callings in life? I think uh, I, I wanted to go this direction because the psalm ends uh, with five through eight, talking about the dominion over the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air. And I don't think a lot of us are chasing down birds or running after beasts. Um, so I do want to contextualize this a little bit for us modernly and say that there are things that God has given you dominion over, that there are areas of your life where God has trusted you to execute like he would, those works of his hands. So what are those areas? Uh, for many, you have built-in ones of family, of work, of school, of um, ministry. Those four things, are, and many of us have those built in. So those are areas where God has given you dominion to work as he would in those situations. How do you best use that dominion and that place? How do you view your calling in life? Or do you view your life as called at all? How do you view where God has you and why he has you there? I think it was R.C. Sproul said, How do you know you're in the will of God? Because you're there. How do you know you're called to an area? Because you're there. We don't see God as accidental or unpurposeful or unintentional. And we see that he's mindful of man here. We see that he has designed things, that he's orchestrated them, that he has given dominion over the works of his hands and, and placed things in motion. And the Bible says elsewhere that it is held together by Jesus' word. So we know these things are intentional. 
Elsewhere in Scripture, we see that these things are assignments even. And that changes mindsets. When you don't view your school or your work or your family or your uh, ministry or relationships in any other way as accidental, but you view them as assigned, as calling. For some of us, that means your jobs that you go to every day that you see as a paycheck for your family is more than that. It's a calling. It's a place where God has placed you intentionally. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you hold Bible studies during break times, but it could. What it does mean is that as a believer, you work as hard as you can, like your father worked, like your father works. That you demonstrate through your effort the same character that God would demonstrate. He's given you dominion over the works of his hands. He's allowed you this place. He's called you to this place. And so then how do you execute? For younger ones who are in families, how has God called you there? To be faithful, to honor your father and mother, to serve, to love, to sacrifice? I think that last one, that sacrifice, is for all of us. But God has intentionally placed us here. He's called us. He's assigned us. He knows. These are areas we've been given dominion over and have been given authority and leadership, and we must exercise it well. David ends by exalting the Lord, and I think, I think that's significant. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That he, he walks through from God's transcendence back down to his imminence and then points back to his transcendence again and says, Lord, over all the earth, your name is majestic. And let me close with this thought. There are easy places to see God's name as majestic. You can think of Yosemite. You can think of uh, anywhere where it's dark and you can see stars. Um, natural creation, easy to see God's name as majestic. You know where it's hard to see God as majestic? In difficulties and trials. In suffering and in pain. Yet over all the earth, he is majestic. He is constantly clothed in majesty. Kings and kingdoms and rulers and dominions. Uh, every, every situation in life is subjected under his feet used for his glory and our good. And we trust that. We trust that. Can you see his name as majestic in the darkness? Can you drive through Yosemite in the dark? Whether or not we feel it or always understand it, it's true. God is majestic. He's worthy of glory. He's worthy of honor. He's worthy of our praise. All things are subject under his feet, and so we pursue him wholly. Let me pray. Lord, we exalt you this morning. We recognize your place in our place, that you are majestic and that we are lowly, that you are exalted and we are humbled.
Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the angels. You say we're of more value than many sparrows. You know the number of hairs on our head. You collect our tears in bottles. You know. Lord, help us to live humbly under that truth and in light of that. Lord, be exalted in us and through us. Help us to live as if we're assigned and we're called to these areas. Help us to glorify you in Jesus' name.